Let me pray. Lord, you are so good, so holy, so full of splendor, Lord, so worthy to be praised. God, it is such a blessing that you have given us time this morning, Lord, to worship you through song, Lord, and to worship you through the study of your word. Lord, we pray that we would not take these blessings for granted, but Lord, that in them you would be fixating our hearts and our minds upon you. And Lord, now that in this time, Lord, you would speak through me, Lord, that I would be a channel of your grace, Lord, a signpost pointing to your Son, Lord, that they would be your words and not my own, Lord, that you would increase, that I would decrease, Lord, that this sermon would be about you and for you and through you. God, we pray that as we look at the life of Jonah and everything that is encompassed in this short book, Lord, that we would be encouraged to read of the wonderful mercy of you, paralleled next to your judgment and your justice, Lord, through the sovereign plan that you are enacting. God, be exalted in this time. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So, I have the task of preaching Jonah for the next three weeks. We will spend more time in Jonah than just three weeks, and so it's not just going to be a three-part series, um, but well, I'm going to hit the ground running for three weeks, and then Mark will continue on in Colossians, and then whenever the Lord allows me to preach again, we'll pick up in Jonah. Today, we're only going to cover the first two verses because there's a lot of history and context and important things for us to know regarding Jonah, Nineveh, Aram, and the likes. Now, Jonah is a weird book. It's a narrative, but it is also a minor prophet. So it reads more like a story of Elijah or Elisha that you would read about in First and Second Kings versus how Hosea or Nahum reads. In fact, most people assume that Jonah wrote the book but scholars actually don't know. And many people believe that due to the literary style of it, it could have been written by the same person that wrote First and Second Kings, which scholars also don't know the author of. The question of authorship could have great significance because if you read the book, you have to be left asking, is Jonah even saved due to his bitter heart even until the end? If Jonah wrote the book, there's a strong case to be made that the prophet of God is saved, and the proof of that is that he writes honestly of his sin as a picture of his repentant heart. There's also a theory that states that Peter is, in a sense, the fulfillment of Jonah as Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10 reads eerily similar to Jonah chapter 1, and Peter in Matthew 16, 17 is called Simon Bar-Jonah or Simon son of Jonah. Now, is this a translation mishap between different Greek texts? As John chapter 1, verse 42 tells us that Peter is the son of John, or does Jesus intentionally link the two figures, Peter and Jonah, together with Acts chapter 10 being the fulfillment of that? If that's the case, or if Jonah wrote Jonah, we love to use Jonah as a perfect illustration for how God continues to bestow mercy upon us, 
even in our rebellion against him. After all, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Thus Jonah is often taught as a man who struggles with sin like you and I, and therefore instead of judging this prophet, we should have compassion for him and for ourselves as his story is quite relatable. However, what if Jonah didn't write this book? Nor is there any, supposed to be any connection to Peter in the New Testament. Then what? Instead of looking at him like a Christian living in sin and finding comfort in the story of the mercy of God upon him, are we to view Jonah like scripture talks about Balaam, who also was a real prophet and a real mouthpiece of God? Yet according to Peter and Jude, Balaam was utterly wicked and should not be viewed as a man to emulate. And therefore Jonah at best could be seen as a tool of God to enact his sovereign will rather than a genuine worshiper of Yahweh. Personally, though, I do believe Jonah wrote Jonah, and I believe Jonah is actually saved. Honestly, I'm not sure about the connection between Peter and Jonah in the New Testament, but due to my thoughts on the genuineness of his relationship with God, I will teach this book as such that he is saved, but I also will be fair and honest with his sin so that none of us will think throughout the duration of this series that despite Jonah's sin and God's continual blessing and faithfulness, that Jonah's actions and heart are somehow okay for us to imitate. Yes, we are sinners and will continue to sin, and sometimes even we may not bear fruit. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, you will see a picture of people who build in this life with the wrong materials, so that on that last day they have nothing to show for, and everything that they ever did is burned to nothing, though they themselves are saved. Although in some way, shape, or form a fruitless life is possible, it shouldn't be one that we strive for, nor one that we are comfortable with. As Paul tells us in Romans 6, that we should not return to our slavery of sin, but since we have died with Christ through faith, we should also strive to live with Christ and under his lordship. If we do, then the fruit will be inevitable. Also, I will do my best in this series to be loud and clear that God is merciful. Jonah's sin in this story is outward and obvious, and it looks bad. And I mean really bad. I mean seriously, out of racism, and I'm not just using that word as a trigger word as it's, it's kind of a hot-button issue in our modern context and culture, but legitimately, Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, not out of fear of the Ninevites, but out of his hatred for the Ninevites, because he does not want God to show them mercy. We read in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, after Jonah goes to Nineveh and they repent and God shows mercy on them, Jonah says, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I know, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, not because they were so wicked and he was fearful that he himself would die or be persecuted, but because he did not want to see this Assyrian people repent and for God to have mercy upon them. 
And if that doesn't sell you on it, Jonah literally says that he would rather die than live in verse 3 because he is so angry that God relented from his wrath towards the people of Nineveh. However, like I said, God is merciful. Even with Jonah's rebellion and angry, bitter heart in this story, God gives him a second and third chance He provides shade for him and continually deals kindly with him when it seems like God should just strike him dead. But like I said, the mercy of God is so important and vital to the story because think about all the sin in your life for a brief second. Yes, there are the outward sins, like the outbursts of anger towards your spouse or your kids or the lie you told or the boasting about what you recently did or the lustful looks that you gave that woman. But what about all the inward sins that aren't seen by the human eye. Like our lack of perfect love for God in our heart, mind, soul, and strength. What about our inability to be moved to compassion when we see brokenness in the world? I just watched What is a Woman the other night. It's a documentary by Matt Walsh on our modern society. And he goes around and interviews all these people to figure out what is a woman as we see the transgender debacle going on in our culture. And instead of being filled with sadness for the blatant sin of all these confused individuals in this film, I found myself laughing at the ridiculousness that I was watching. Do you think Jesus would laugh or be moved to compassion? And therefore, really, despite the cliche, what makes me any better than Jonah? Praise God that God is merciful because, wow, if God judged me the way that my flesh likes to judge Jonah, I would be in hell. And therefore, again, as we go through this new series on Jonah, the mercy of God towards Jonah and towards Nineveh will be a major theme. But in order that we don't diminish or take God's mercy lightly, We have to also be honest and real about sin and take a hard look at it in our own lives so that we would see all the more our need for Jesus. Furthermore, back to some logistics of Jonah, people like to argue that this book is allegorical and that there is no actual way that Jonah was swallowed by a big fish, but instead this story was more like a parable. Jesus, however, seems to disagree as he cites this story as the sign the Pharisees asked for in Matthew 12, 39-41, and Luke 11, 29-32, as he tells them that just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so too will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So t- and, and we know that Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead wasn't allegorical, or else our faith would be in vain, so why would the miracle of Jonah allegorical. The miracle of Jonah is quite miraculous as we think about Jonah being swallowed up by a fish and he's living in the heart of a giant fish for three days and three nights. It seems crazy. It seems ludicrous, which is why scholars want to dismiss it. But as crazy and miraculous as that story is, the miracle of the resurrection is far more glorious, far more unlikely, far more unbelievable. Yet we know that Jesus's resurrection is true. That's what our faith is built on. Thus, I think any attempt to discredit the legitimacy of this book and the historicity of it is a shot in the dark and an attack from the enemy on the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture. 
Satan wants us to believe that God's word is make-believe and not to be taken literally. So that when we dismiss the literal nature of the book, then we pave the way to believe in evolution, to affirm gay marriage, and most importantly, deny the deity and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which if we were to do that, we wouldn't have any foundation to stand on whatsoever. Our faith really would be worthless and we of all men would be most pitied. Now, I have more important background and context to share, as well as some more themes, but I will do that as we get started in the text. So go to Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So first off, we're introduced to Jonah. Now, who is Jonah? According to verse 1, he is the son of Amittai. And according to 2 Kings 14.25, he was a prophet in the reign of Jeroboam II, who was the king of Israel, or the king of the northern kingdom. And so if we remember, after King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel is split into two different kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And all throughout the rest of the history of both Israel and Judah... Israel has wicked king after wicked king after wicked king, and Judah has a few righteous kings intermixed. Jonah was a prophet during the wicked reign of Jeroboam II in Israel. And Jeroboam II reigned from 793 B.C. to 753 B.C. Jonah prophesied from 800 B.C. to 800, or 750 B.C. And Jonah lived in Zebulon, which is one of the northernmost tribes of Israel, just southwest of the border of Aram, which again, according to 2 Kings 14.25, Jonah announced that God wanted the border of Israel and Aram restored, and it was able to be restored as Aram and Assyria were both a little weak and weary from a battle that they had between each other. So God told Jonah, hey, go restore have the people of Israel restore the border between Israel and Aram. And that happened early on in Jeroboam II's reign because Assyria, who was even more northern than Aram, came down and fought against Aram and they battled. And because they were focused on that battle, Israel was able to restore the border. Now, before we continue, what is the political climate of Israel right now? Meaning, who is Israel's main enemy when Jonah prophesies? Most people think that it's Assyria, which is why Jonah is going there to call them to repentance. But really, Israel's main enemy at this time is actually Aram, the nation just north of them, whose capital city is Damascus, a city and nation who has given Israel and Judah fits for centuries. So Assyria and the people of Nineveh are actually not Israel's number one enemy at this point in time. You see, Assyria reigns from 1100 B.C. to 600 B.C. But their peak of where they really start getting in power doesn't happen until about 743 B.C., which is 40 years after Jonah prophesies in Nineveh. This is significant because when God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, he's not thinking to himself, Ah, oh, the most wicked country on earth, they're our number one enemies. He's just thinking, I hate Assyrians, I don't want to go there. And in order to go there, he probably would have had to go through Damascus, 
which is north of where he was living, which is the number one enemy. And so Damascus and the people of Aram, the Arameans, are a city and a nation who give Israel and Judah fits for centuries. For example, in 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 3 through 7, Jehoahaz, the king of Israel and grandfather of Jeroboam II, so Jeroboam II, he's king when Jonah prophesies, his grandfather, Jehoahaz, did evil in the sight of the Lord, and so God gave them over to the, to the oppression of Aram. However, just a hundred or so years later, after Jonah goes to Nineveh, Aram locks arms with the king of Israel, and together, the Arameans and the Israelites try and attack Judah, the southern kingdom. What happens in this battle in 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 7 through 9, is that Ahaz, the king of Judah, cries out for help. As the Arameans and the Israelites are attacking them, Ahaz cries out for help, and you know who he cries out to help to? The Assyrians. And so Ahaz submits himself to the king of Assyria, and Assyria finally kills Rezin, the king of Aram, and overtakes them completely. Then just a few years later, in 722 BC, Assyria takes Israel captive, scatters foreigners all throughout their land, and Israel is never again restored. However, this captivity and destruction of Israel into the hands of Assyria doesn't take place for another 60 years after Jonah prophesies in Nineveh. So who and what is Nineveh? Nineveh is the capital city of the nation of Assyria, which is built by Nimrod, a mighty enemy of God, according to Genesis chapter 10, who was from the cursed line of Ham due to his sin of uncovering his father Noah's nakedness. And so if you remember Noah, where when he gets off the ark, he, he builds all these vineyards and he gets some wine and he gets drunk on his wine. And Noah has a, a night of folly where he gets drunk and he's passed out. And Ham, his son, goes in and he sees that his father is naked. And instead of covering him up like Shem and Japheth do, Ham goes and gets his brothers and mocks them. And God, because of it, curses Ham and his line forever. And what we see is the only thing worse than sin itself is to make fun of somebody for their sin. And Ham is cursed, and from the line of Ham comes Nineveh. From the line of Ham comes Babylon. From the line of Ham comes Philistines. From the line of Ham comes every other enemy nation in the land of Canaan. And so Jonah probably knows this, is well aware of this, and so he doesn't want to go to Nineveh again because they're enemies of God, and he hates them. He doesn't understand that God's mercy is for the entire world, that the gospel is global. And so Nineveh is the hub, it's the capital city of the first world superpower, which has the peak of its reign in 745 BC, 35 years after Jonah goes to Nineveh. And Assyria is used by God to destroy and conquer several nations until they themselves are destroyed in 605 BC, and Nineveh, their capital, falls to Babylon in 612 BC. The book of Nahum, also a minor prophet, was written in 650 B.C. to warn Nineveh that they would soon be destroyed. So then, enough with the history. Why does God call Jonah to go to this wicked city and tell them to repent? There's three reasons. There's the sovereign reason, 
the mercy reason, and the judgment reason. All three of them blend together, but I am going to first explain the sovereign reason, and then I will explain the mercy and judgment reason together. First off, in regards to God's sovereign plan, the plan in which he is always enacting, even through our sin. This is a plan, according to Job 42.2, which cannot be thwarted. Job experienced that in his life, as he was blessed and highly favored by God for being a righteous man, yet everything was taken from him. His children were killed, his livestock was stolen, his body was plagued with illness, and at the very end of the book of Job, Job comes to terms with the fact that God's plan for his life cannot be thwarted. So as miserable as things looked for him, that was God's plan for him. And so this is what we call God's will of decree. It is different than his will of desire, as his desirous will states what God simply desires, such as 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, which states, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Does everyone do these things all the time? No. But he desires that we would. And therefore, that is God's will of desire, but God also has a will of decree, one in which he is always working out. To illustrate both of these, go to Lamentations chapter 3, verses 32 through 33, and verse 37. It's on the screen. For if he, being God, causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly. That word willingly actually means from his heart. And so he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the sons of men. And then in verse 37, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? What this shows us is that God doesn't desire to afflict his people, but in his will of decree, he has to accomplish his sovereign plan, which can include our affliction. That's why he says in verse 37, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Put in our layman terms, every single thing that has ever happened on this earth or in your life specifically has been God's sovereign plan for your life, which for the believer should be wildly encouraging because in, we're told in Romans 8.28 that all things happen according to God's will for our good to those who love him and to those who are his. Therefore, in regards to God's sovereign plan, he has selected Assyria to be his rod of anger to punish nations, including to take his own nation, Israel, captive. We see this in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 15. So if you would turn there with me, Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 15, it won't be on the screen. So again... If we're lost from all the different history and stuff of what's going on, I'm saying that God in his sovereignty is sending Jonah to Nineveh so that they would repent, so that God can use Assyria as his rod of anger on all the other nations, including, 60 years later, his own nation, Israel. And so we see in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 15, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. 
I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. For it says, Are not my princes all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish, or Hamath like Arpad, or Samaria like Damascus? Are my ha- as my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images, just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? So what God is saying there is he has raised up Assyria to use as his rod of anger to punish all these other enemy nations, including Aram, as Aram is never seen again after 2 Kings 16, after he destroys them, the Assyrians destroy them, and God uses Assyria to take captive Samaria or Israel. But the king of Assyria has no idea that he is being used by God in this way. The king of Assyria just simply thinks that he is the most powerful king that's ever lived and he's going to conquer the entire world, including Jerusalem, i.e. the kingdom of Judah. Which is why he says, the king of Assyria says in verse 11, Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? This king of Assyria is on a terror because God has raised them up to do so. The king of Assyria is not aware that he is being used by God in this way. But God in his sovereignty is saying, no, 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 no. It stops now. You're not going to destroy Jerusalem. Because I have special plans for Jerusalem. The Babylonians are going to destroy Jerusalem. But then I have special plans for them as they will be returned to the land. The remnant will be spared from Judah, but it's not for Israel. And so we see in verse 12, So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom, I did this, for I have understanding. And I removed the boundaries of the peoples, and I plundered their treasures, and like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants. And my hand reached to the riches of the peoples like a nest, and as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth. And there was not one that flapped its wing, or opened its beak, or chirped. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it, or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. Why is God going to destroy the king of Assyria? Because in the king of Assyria's pride, he has said, I have done all of this. I have conquered all the nations of the earth. Look at me, I am so great. And God says, that is like an axe. After a man uses the axe to chop the tree down, that is like the axe growing a mouth and looking to the man who just used it and saying, look at this beautiful tree I just chopped down. That's insane. God is the one who is wielding the tool. God is the one who is sovereignly moving the king of Assyria to punish all these enemy nations. And because the king of Assyria doesn't get that, nor does he humble himself before the Lord, God in his wrath towards him in his justice towards Assyria will destroy Assyria. So, according to Jonah's prophecy to Nineveh in chapter 3, verse 4 of Jonah, 
we read, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So if God didn't send Jonah to call them to repentance, then he would have to destroy them because of their extreme wickedness. After all, these guys were wicked. And according to Amos, when they took Israel captive, when the Assyrians took Israel captive in 722 BC, they take them away with hooks. Look at Amos 4.2. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. The idea is that these Assyrians would line up the Israelites like a, like a commander would line up his army and they strung them together with meat hooks and with fish hooks and they pulled them along. And so every single time a person got out of line or, or fell behind or went too fast, it would rip on their flesh as these hooks would, would destroy them and it would be significant pain. And so these guys are wicked but in God's sovereignty, he declared that he would destroy Assyria for their wickedness after they take Israel captive. And so Jonah has to go to Nineveh to tell these guys to repent because if he doesn't tell the Ninevites to repent, then God destroys Assyria. Then who's God's rod of anger? Because in his sovereign plan, he has already declared that this is his rod of anger, Assyria. Does that make sense? And so in God's sovereignty, he declared that he would destroy Assyria for their wickedness. And in his sovereignty, he had Jonah preach there. And in his sovereignty, he had Nineveh repent, as we know from Acts chapter 11, verse 18, and 2 Timothy 2.25, that repentance is a gift that God grants. Acts 11.18 says, When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. And in 2 Timothy 2.25b, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. God in his sovereignty grants Nineveh repentance to delay and prolong his judgment upon them so that he can use them to enact his sovereign purposes. And in God's sovereignty, he had himself relent from his wrath that he was about to pour on them to a later date so that he could raise up Assyria to be his rod of anger, much like God raised up Pharaoh, hardened Pharaoh's heart so that God could do the plagues and the Passover and have his glory spread through the entire earth as he saves his covenant people. So then why is the truth of God's sovereignty relevant to us? Because in the story of Jonah, you see a disobedient, bitter prophet that cannot even thwart the plan of God, and therefore neither can you. You may, like I often do, look back on your life and have regrets over your sin and your poor choices. However, you can always rest in this fact. There is nothing that you have ever done nor anything that you could ever do that can ruin God's plan. He works with you and often like Jonah in spite of you. But he will never be tripped up by you or by your sin. It is all planned for by him. Now, don't take a fatalistic approach and think, I guess nothing I do matters since it's all planned out by God anyways because that would go directly against what the Word of God teaches. As how we use our next breaths are very important. As we saw earlier, God desires that we would continually give thanks, continually rejoice, continually pray. Amen. However, the reason this should be comforting is that if you have repented of your sin, you shouldn't beat yourself up for it anymore. 
God dealt with it on the cross, and it was all a part of his plan for your life up until this point. You see, I am one who, like Jonah, made colossal public sins that many people know of. And it's so easy for me to hate myself, to pray for amnesia, and often, like Jonah, even wish that I was dead. Those thoughts are not God thoughts, nor are they helpful to our spiritual growth. God loves us. He has died for us. He has forgiven our sins and now is continually at work in us so that we would be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Looking back on past sins is like going back to the cross and re-crucifying Jesus because you think the first time didn't work all the way. It's idolatry and it's wrong and it's something that I am often guilty of. Leave your sin at the cross and in the past where God in his mercy dealt with it and in his sovereignty planned it out for your ultimate good in his ultimate glory. Next, the mercy and judgment. First off, Israel was never to be a people group that became an end in and of themselves like they viewed themselves as, but they were always supposed to be a means to an end. What I mean is that the point of Israel's existence wasn't Israel's glory and fame, but it was for God to get glory as Israel was supposed to obey God and make his glory known throughout the all the earth. Instead, Israel continually sinned against God, worshipped other gods, took advantage of being God's covenant people. This arrogance and lack of love for God or other nations led to Israel oppressing their own people, as well as the foreigners in their land, and when instead they were supposed to be merciful and take care of all the needy and the oppressed. However, they failed to do so, and according to Amos, this is why they were taken captive by Assyria. Amos writes in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke its punishment. Because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. These who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless also turn aside the way of the humble. And a man and his father resort to the same girl. In order to profane my holy name, on garments taken as pledges they stretch out beside every altar and in the house of their God they drink wine of those who have been fined. These Israelites are wicked they oppress the poor. They don't give mercy to the needy. Their fathers and the sons are sleeping with the same women, and they are getting drunk in the house of God. And he says in 4.1, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring now that we may drink. The people of Israel oppress the poor, crush the needy, and live lives that are very self-absorbed. The only thing that matters is their own happiness signified and bring now that we may drink. Doesn't matter about the lowliness of anyone else. I want what I want when I want it. And in Amos 5, 11 through 13, therefore because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, yet you will not live in them. 
You have planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. For I know your transgressions are many, and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes, and turn aside the poor in the gate, therefore at such a time the prudent person keeps silent, for it is an evil time. Israel wasn't doing their God-given mandate to love everyone within their gate, to be merciful, to care for the oppressed, to care for the lowly. There are two things in which Israel and Judah get taken into captivity for as we read through the prophets. The two things, of course, they're an idolatrous people. Of course, they're a people full of sexual immorality and they intermarry other women from all these other lands. But the two things that are continually repeated over and over and over again against Israel and Judah are that they break the Sabbath, they don't trust in the Lord, they don't rest in the Lord, and secondly, they don't care for the widows and the orphans. That is what we see all throughout Scripture. Israel, God's covenant people, was raised up by God to show mercy to all the ends of the earth, and they can't even show mercy to the people within their gates. And it's wickedness. It's the same reason why Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. Israel wasn't doing their job and therefore God in his judgment handed them over to their own desires and their enemies and went to the Gentiles. Jesus even tells the Pharisees this in Luke chapter 4 verses 14 through 30. Go to Luke chapter 4. Keep in mind, we see in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 10, that the door is flung wide open for the Gentiles to be saved. But God's plan was always that all the earth would be saved, that all the earth would hear the good news of Jesus and the coming Savior. Yet Israel, in their pride, in their arrogance, in their selfishness, wanted God for themselves. And that is why God hands them over. And so in Luke chapter 4, Verses 14 through 30, we see Jesus beginning his public ministry and he's preaching in Nazareth and he says this in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus came to preach to the poor, to the needy, to the sick, to the desperate, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, that salvation belongs to all who believe. And then in verse 22, we see that these people are mesmerized by the words of Jesus. And he said to them in verse 23, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Jesus knows that these people, that these Jews are going to reject him. And then to prove it, he talks about how there were many widows in the time of Elijah that the people of Israel were not taking care of. Many Israel, many Israelite widows in the time of Elijah. But instead, God raises up Elijah and sends him to a Gentile widow, to a Shunammite woman in a foreign land. And then he goes and he says, and Elisha. 
There were many people in Israel that had leprosy and needed mercy. Yet God raises up Elisha to go to Naaman the Aramean. And Naaman the Aramean is healed from his leprosy. And the Shunammite widow, as well as Naaman the leper, both of those become converts of Yahweh. The Shunammite widow and her son worship Yahweh, and Naaman the leper worships Yahweh, where he even pleads with Elisha before he goes. He says, may the Lord please have favor upon me as I go back and I have to fulfill my duties to these pagan gods, but I don't want to worship these pagan gods. And Elisha says, the Lord has favor upon you. The gospel has always been for all people everywhere. This is just like Nineveh, a wicked Gentile city that when they hear the word of God, they repent and are spared from the judgment of God. This is the people on the boat that we will read about next week who Jonah sails with, these polytheistic pagan worshipers who after Jonah is thrown into the sea and the sea calms These people worship Yahweh and make a sacrifice unto him. This is why Christ says in Mark chapter 2 verse 17, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. You see, the Israelites at the time where Jonah prophesied to Nineveh, they didn't really think of themselves as sinners. They thought and knew that they were God's covenant people, and because of that, they could kind of do whatever they wanted to do. I mean, after all, they were the descendants of Abraham. They could live however they wanted to live. They could worship God and have the temple and have their sacrifices and do all that, but they could also have their pagan gods and marry Gentile women and everything would be fine. They can do their idolatry. They can oppress the people in their gates. It doesn't matter. And so God sends Jonah to Nineveh. This is just like the Pharisees when Jesus was on earth. The Pharisees didn't think that they were wretched sinners, which is why when they go to John the Baptist, John the Baptist says, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And they refused to bear fruit of repentance. They wouldn't be baptized because they wouldn't repent because they thought of themselves as here and everyone else as here. Jesus says in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, do not be like the Pharisees who look with contempt upon the lowly. This is just like the Jews. As the gospel is going out in the book of Acts, Paul is preaching to a group of Jewish men in Acts chapter 13 that reject him, which is why Paul preaches the gospel to the Gentiles. And it is often why we today have tremendously low views of God as we don't view ourselves as wretched sinners like we are. It doesn't matter if you are or were a prostitute drug addict who murdered people. Or if you were a nice moral kid who grew up in a loving family who volunteered at the soup kitchen every day of your life. We all equally need Jesus unto salvation. As scripture says that we all equally are dead in our sin. None of us are more dead than others. We are all equally dead. And therefore, because we are all equally dead, we are all equally in need of a Savior who will give us mercy And you see, God in his mercy saves sinners regardless of their nationality who recognize their need for God. It doesn't matter if you're a Ninevite who takes people captive by hooks and drags them to the city where they take pleasure in their affliction or if you're like an Israelite who grows up in Samaria in the land and worships God with a bad heart. All people equally need Christ. 
If you believe you have been shown the mercy of God until salvation, please, please continue to see your need for him, for your next breath, and for your continual sanctification. You are going to screw up. You are going to continue to sin. It is inescapable while we are on this earth. But in your sin, run to Jesus, the merciful and loving God, who bestows mercy on wicked nations like Nineveh and disobedient, bitter prophets like Jonah. He and he alone is worthy to be run to and to be worshipped. He and he alone is worthy to be served and worthy to be praised. So church, let us not be like Jonah in his sin, but instead let us be like Nineveh in their recognition of their need for Jesus and their humble repentance. For God, as Jonah says in chapter 4, verse 2, is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Let us run to that God, our God, Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Lord, you are so good, so worthy to be worshipped. Lord, as we look back upon your word, Lord, it can be so both encouraging and discouraging for us at times. Lord, we don't want to sinfully take comfort in the sin of your people to use as an excuse for our own sin, but Lord, we want to take comfort in the fact that you give mercy to sinners as we are. God, it is so easy for us to get distracted by our sin, to get distracted by our affliction, and to miss the goodness and the mercy of you as you are working out your sovereign plan for us and for your world. Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would come to know you more. Lord, in John 17, Jesus prays, this is eternal life, that we would know God and know Christ. Lord, I pray that we would come to know you. Lord, that we wouldn't just come to know your word more in an academic sense, but Lord, that we would come to know you in a relational sense through the study of your word. God, we thank you for showing mercy upon Nineveh. Lord, we thank you for showing mercy upon Jonah. Because we can relate. Sinners in need of mercy. God, be merciful to us. Be compassionate to us in our sin. Be patient with us. Relent from your calamity that is so due to us. Lord, thank you for sending Christ to bear that calamity for us. To bear that wrath for us. Thank you for sending your spirit to indwell us, Lord, so that we can now live lives that are pleasing to you. God, thank you so much. May you be exalted in our lives as we leave here today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.